Welcome to the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. Where we celebrate poetry and the Commonwealth with people from across the Commonwealth. I'm Giles Brandreth. And I'm Afra Brandreth. We're a father and daughter based in London in the UK. But each fortnight we're on an adventure around the Commonwealth, meeting fascinating people, hearing their stories, getting to know 56 amazing and diverse countries and exploring it all through poetry. Where are we off to explore this week, Afra? This week, we're going to be finding out all about Malaysia, which is in Southeast Asia. Peninsula Malaysia lies south of Thailand. The states of Sabah and Sarawak are located across the South China Sea and form part of the island of Borneo. They border the small country of Brunei and the Indonesian part of the island, Kalimantan. Malaysia's environment features mountains, mangrove swamps, low plains and sandy beaches. You give us the facts and figures, Dad. Population 32.37 million. The area is 330,000 square kilometres. The capital is Kuala Lumpur. Malaysia joined the Commonwealth in 1957 following the Federation of Malaya's independence from Britain. The official language is Malay, although English is widely spoken. More than 60% of the country is covered by rainforest, as well as being the home to four UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Well, I have to say I've had the pleasure of visiting Malaysia and it really is a wonderful place to discover. And to help us to get to know a bit more about its culture and poetry, we're meeting an award-winning Malaysian poet, novelist, educator and former festival director, Bernice Chorley. She's the author of seven books of poetry and prose and for 15 years directed the Georgetown Literary Festival, which won the London Book Fair International Excellence Awards in 2018. Although she started out in Kuala Lumpur, she's currently working in Stockholm, which is where we're finding her. Can't wait to meet her. Well, today we're meeting a remarkable woman. Her name is Bernice Chowley, and for more than 20 years she's worked as a, well, in the creative industries, as a writer, as a teacher, as a photographer, as an actor filmmaker, and she's won multiple awards for her work and her contribution to the arts in Malaysia. That sounds very impressive, Bernice. <laughs> uh, is it really? Well, I just, you know, just hustled, hustled for 30 years to be heard to poems for other writers and poets. I also started a publishing house. And yeah, I just, you know, worked with whatever avenues were possible, whatever institutions wanted to work with me in tried my best to bring and elevate literary arts um, from Malaysia to the rest of the world. Well, now you're talking to the audience who listen regularly to the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. And we've been listening to, I think now in more than 70 countries, 56 countries in the Commonwealth. Does the word of the Commonwealth mean anything to you personally? Yes, it does. Um, because we were, you know, the remnants of empire allowed my parents to get an education. My father studied in Liverpool. My mother went to Melbourne, Australia. And as a result of that, I, you know, I inherited their love um, of words and their love of travel and their love of the world. And it sort of made me who I am, really. So the word Commonwealth can, you know, conjure up many memories. Of course, uh, the legacy of empire is not all pleasant in, in our part of the world. But I think they're, they're the good bits. I, I choose to remember the good bits. Good. You're currently living in Stockholm, but mm -hmm. it would be lovely if you could take us back to the beginning. I think you were uh, born in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about your story and your childhood growing up in Malaysia. 
I was born in Georgetown, um, Prince of Wales Island, which is now Penang uh, and the island of Penang in uh, in the late 60s, uh, to a Punjabi father and a Chinese mother. So this sort of mixed race marriage in the 60s was unheard of and very, very rare. And my parents had to fight to love and to get married. And so they eloped. They eloped and they married in a church, married by a French priest called Father Tavernek and became Christians. My father changed his name from Surinder Singh to Bernard Chorley. So Chorley is actually my clan name from the Punjab. And my mother changed her name from uh, Law Suit York to Jane. And I was the peacemaker between these two families. Um, it's a remarkable story, really. But then it, it sort of ends very tragically when my father dies um, four years after I was born. And because I was there at the time, I witnessed that death, so to speak. Um, it was a real sense of eviction. My father's death evicted me from the world and I had to write myself back into it. So it was a very, very, um, very tragic uh, a childhood to begin with, because... Can I ask, was he of a, of a great age or was he ill? He or? was No, he was 33. We were oh, on nice. the beach. We were on the beach in, uh, in Penang. And um, one minute he was there playing with me in the water. And I turned around and I heard my mother scream and then he was gone. And, and I real, you know, I'll remember the, the sort of, well, I mean, it, it might sound a bit too gory for me to repeat, but... Um, Yes, I was there and I remember everything like it happened yesterday. And that, you know, that little girl sort of screaming, crying by the sea is an image that has stuck with me ever since. I've done years of therapy, of course, and I've written it out, you know. Um, but I think that 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 sense of eviction from the world was so real and so visceral and so painful and so traumatic that all of my work since then has informed me of that event and a reconciliation and acceptance of that event. Mm -hmm. What kind of childhood then did you have as this now child of a single parent? Yes. What, what, how did your mother earn her living? How did she? Um, well, they were both teachers. My parents were both teachers. So my mother continued teaching and we were living in this town called Taiping, which has great historical significance, um, um, just sort of south of, of Penang. Uh, we lived there for a few more years until my mother realized that she needed help. So we, then we moved to Ipoh. So by this time, there was me, my sister Janice, and my brother Bernard, who uh, my mother didn't know was pregnant with when my father died. So it was all even sort of another layer of, of, of tragedy because my brother never met my father. Um, so we were raised by, so the, the Chinese side of my family were predominantly in Ipoh. So I was raised Chinese, but I yearned to be Indian because my Indian grandparents were in Penang. So it was sort of a very confusing childhood. I had this funny name. Um, I was teased a lot. I was mixed. Um, I didn't really know who I was. You know, I just sort of daydreamed to high, through high school and I read. I just read everything I could lay my hands on. I read encyclopedias. I read, you know, the Reader's Digest. I devoured all of Enid Blyton's books. I read Jules Verne. I read everything. Poetry, you know, the classics, of course. Um, and I just sort of lived in my head. But then I knew later on that when I, you know, when I excelled in, in, in English classes in secondary school that, you know, I remember one of my English teachers saying, Bernice, you can write, you can really write. Maybe this is something that you can do. So, and that's how it sort of started. I just started writing really bad poetry. <laughs> well, we'll come on to your poetry, which is award-winning, so it can't be that bad. Um, <laughs> but give us a flavor of what Malaysia was like in those days, in the 70s? I mean, 
what was the physical landscape around you? It's, uh, we've, I've never been there, and I never. Right. I know it's a country of sort of uh, alternately sort of mountains and mangrove swamps and plain sandy mm-hmm. beaches. What was the Malaysia of your childhood, where you were living? Oh God, it's hot afternoons watching television. We only had three channels then. Then um, sort of running by the sidewalk, playing with my dog. Um, sort of yeah, just just hot soups, um, the comfort of my grandmother's shop house, listening to her, um, singing along to Chinese opera, um, the clacking of chopsticks, the sear of hot fat um, from the butchers downstairs. Yeah, just very, it was, it's, it was a very special time because so much of Ipoh um, in, the, in the shop house that I grew up in was, was um, preserved by the, by the war. So it wasn't really affected by the war. A lot of Ipoh was affected by the war, by the Japanese occupation. So this little enclave of pre-war shop houses was very, very nostalgic and is now sort of being preserved um, and hailed as a sort of a heritage city uh, south of Ipoh in, in, in this town. But it was it was lovely. It was I have just almost sort of faded 70s sepia type um, images of the man selling bread the man selling um, the tofu far, the man selling um, the, you know, the snacks by the side of the road, uh, my grandmother cooking, my grandfather standing there, you know, sternly looking over his, uh, his, his butcher shop and the workers working for him. Um, and just reading, really, I had the special chair um, that I could plop myself on and have a sort of, you know, like a, a pile of books. A uh, cup of Milo and uh, some biscuits. Cup you know, of that, Milo. What's cup Milo? Of Milo. Milo is basically like a Nestle, like chocolate drink. Oh. I think it's a mm-hmm. big thing in Australia. Is it? I've never heard yes. of it. Really? Well, okay. We had some, when I was a child, we called Nesquik. Does that still exist? Yes. Yes. It's similar to that. It's similar to that. Different name. Now yes. you say that being mixed race was unusual, but I, mm-hmm. I understood that in fact Malaysia was a real melting pot where you had Chinese, you had Indians, you had uh, Malays. Was that not so when you were a girl, or, or were they were all there, but they didn't mix much? Well, they work? were all there. I mean, the Malaysia in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, and the eighties was a lot more multicultural then, you know. But it's just that the interracial marriage that only started happening in the sixties, and of course, when you know uh, that gen- the first generation of of um, students who were, got scholarships, who got Col- Colombo scholarships to go to to Britain to study, all came back with, with um, English wives. So my father didn't come back with an English wife, but <laughs> he married someone who was Chinese, who was not of his race and religion. And that was also very, very um, sort of scandalous and controversial at the time. So in the 60s and the 70s, that's when all the intermarrying started to happen. Tell us about your taste in poetry when you were a girl. We know that you loved traditional reading like Enid Blyton, but when did mm-hmm. you remember the first poem that you read or even learned by heart? Um, gosh, this is, mm, that's a really good question. I've never really thought of it, of it that way, but, um, I remember reading something about Edith Sitwell and I just thought that that was just so interesting. And, and, um, I studied literature in school. So it was all the classics. It was, you know, we did a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Hardy. Um, but somehow because I was taught by, um, brother Vincent, who was an Irish Lasallian brother, and he gave me private lessons. So I think it was my interest in poetry that, so I remember just reading a lot of, Wilfred Owen, so the you know the the, the war poets, um, primarily sort of English poets. 
Did it feel strange to you as a as a girl in Malaysia on mm-hmm. the other side of the world reading Shakespeare, 16th, yes. 17th century person from Stratford upon Avon, Thomas <laughs> Hardy, a Victorian, yes. Wilfred Owen, a, a European war that he's writing about. Mm-hmm. These dead white men, you yes. were studying them at school and you just took it for granted, did you? Well, we took it for granted because it was it was the canon. You know, we didn't we didn't question it then. It was just part of being in the Commonwealth. It was part of the legacy of empire. So we just did what we did and we studied what we studied and we just memorized these lines from, you know, great speeches, Julius Caesar, blah, blah, blah. And I also participated in a lot of contests. I actually won, you know, I was the top elocutor (laughs) in my year. And I recited the entire, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, that, that whole speech to an audience of, I don't know, 200 people. Um, so it was very strange. Yes, it was very, very strange. And and you'd sort of develop this romanticized idea of what it means to be a writer, to be someone who is English, to be someone who is of the other, you know, because I didn't feel that I was represented in any way at all. So it was very strange. It was very, very strange and very discombobulating, to be honest. But you appreciated the literature. I mean, you don't regret it now. No. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely not. I mean, it gave me an ear for things. It gave me, you know, it, it gave me an understanding of cadence and, and and line and structure and language. So I'm very grateful for that because I think, you know, it, it gives you a very strong understanding of the English language and of understanding literature. But at the same time, um, there was a choice of studying Malay literature, which is which is very rich and very layered and, and has a great tradition as well. It's just that during that time, I was more um, inclined towards the English language. And who were the big Malaysian poets or literary figures that you might have heard about at that time? Um, Osman Awang, um, um, Latif Mohidin, you know, Saleh Ben Jonet, someone I'm going to read later. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there were there were there were mostly there were mostly men, and these were. These are proponents of the Pantun. I'm sure you've heard of the Pantun, which is a Malay form of poetry. Tell us more. What is the Pantun? It's called the Pantun in French. So it's basically four lines, and you have rhyming couplets. Uh-huh. And they're very, very. It's a very simple. It's a very simple form of poetry. Um, but it comes from the Malay archipelago, from the Malay Peninsula. So a lot of the writers who are working with the Pantun were either writing, you know, very beautiful love poetry or very political poetry. So it was something that was kind of either, you know, one or the other. And of course, exploring the legacy of empire. You don't have a pantoon in your head that you could just speak to us from either from China. Um, no, I haven't really thought in Malay for a while. It's, it's all sort of muddled with Swedish and English at the moment. But <laughs> well, we'll have to do our homework. We'll have to discover a pantoon. <laughs> so these would be written in uh, Malay. In Malay. In Malay. Yes, in Malay. And Malay that... is a very beautiful language. It's a very beautiful poetic language. And I also write in Malay sometimes. It's just that I don't have. I have some Malay in my in my in my collections. It's just I don't have the translations with me at the moment. So, and in Malaysia, Malay is the national language, but there are yes. a number of different languages that tend to be spoken. Is that right? What would people usually um, use? Yeah, well, Malay is the official language, but English is very widely spoken. As is, you know, you have the different Chinese dialects. You have Mandarin. You have Cantonese. You have Hokkien. You have Hakka. You have Teochew. And of course, you have Tamil and the other, you know, sort of um, Indian dialects like Malayalam, for example, which is also quite common um, from Kerala, from the community, the diaspora from 
from South India primarily, and of course Punjabi. Um, so, and of course, you know, you've got all the indigenous uh, languages in East Malaysia, and there's hundreds of them. So there's a lot of languages spoken in Malaysia, a lot. So you go to school, you then go to university? Yes, I went to a convent. I was educated at the Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus in Ipoh. Um, I had a very, very... Um, so because because the British had basically set the curriculum for us, so we we followed the British system. You know, you had primary school and then you had secondary school. All the subjects were, you know, you know we had the um, uh, high school certificate and then we had to take um, the Cambridge paper if you wanted to, you know, uh, go to university. Um, yeah, so, and then I went to, uh, I went to New Zealand for six months because I got a scholarship to do an exchange there and I went to the Marlboro Girls College for six months and then I got a scholarship to go to Canada um, to study education and English literature. And that's what I did. And is it education that's given you, that made you a kind of middle-class person? Middle... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what that means. Well, no, no, nor am I. But as I look at you and it's the way you talk, I think to myself, <laughs> this is actually, she's become, whatever her, her strange childhood, this tragedy of age four, suddenly finding mm. she had no father, dies on the beach next to her, brought up by her mother, who is a teacher, and the grandparents. Uh, I'm thinking uh, in the class structure, maybe there isn't a class structure in Malaysia. Hmm, I think, I think there is. Yeah, because my, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family. My my parents were were products of, of you know, just working class people. Mm. But I think my love for language and my love for literature and my love for books elevated me in a way that I am just more fitted to be in a world that appreciates language and literature. Because books to me were my, books were my friends. And and I always knew, you know, when I was encouraged by my teachers and then later on in, in Canada, when I had a creative writing teacher, she said, Bernice, you need to write because you are a poet. And no one had ever said that to me before. It's like no one had said to me, you are a poet because you can write or you can write. Therefore, you're a poet. I mean, those those um, statements aren't necessarily um, cohesive in that manner. But but what I'm saying is that. I developed a great love for language. And I knew that language would help elevate my consciousness and my ability to understand the world and my place in it. So do you want to share one of your poems with us now? And maybe wh when did you first start writing poetry? And when, when were you first published as a poet? And then give us one of your poems. I first started writing at the age of 17 when I took my first creative writing um, class at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. And that's when I, I really started to take it very seriously because before that it was just sort of like oh let's write a few lines here and there and it was all very bad of course but then I started to learn structure and I started to get criticism and then so yeah so I started at the age of 17 and um and then I pa participated in a few uh literary events in Canada when I was there for about six years I was exposed to a literary festival and what that meant and when I went back to Malaysia um that's when I met um, some very, very key poets and writers at the time. And uh, I believe I was first published. Oh, my goodness, I can't remember now. It was probably a magazine of some sort. And then I started publishing house in 1998 because no one was publishing poetry in Malaysia at the time. No one. In English. It was kind of unheard of. Um, so, you know, I had to start a publishing house and we published 
10 writers, including poets. And uh, yeah, that was in 1998, I believe. So you you had to start a publishing house to publish your own poetry, among yes. those others. Yes. How extraordinary. And why <laughs> was there no tradition? Of, I mean, clearly, Malaysians have been writing poetry for yes. hundreds of years. Yes. Was it an oral tradition? It was, yeah, it was also oral, but it was very academic. I mean, you had to be either be a sort of, a, you know, an, an, an academic to be accepted um, as a poet. Either you were you taught in a university and therefore you could be published. But someone like me would just come back from abroad with no sort of cred, no credibility, no nothing to show for herself. I mean, no one's going to publish anyone like that. So, so we had to take it upon ourselves to just sort of, you know, create a platform for a younger generation of writers who are not part of, you know, the sort of tail end of empire. Because those writers who are then in their 50s and 60s were already published. But someone who's in their 20s, you know, you had to start somewhere. No one really was willing to give us a chance at the time. So we had to prove ourselves. And I had to prove myself to myself <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> well, now, prove yourself to our listeners. Oh, my goodness. Reading one of your poems. And, and tell us a little bit about it before you start. Okay, so this one is um, about my father. And um, apart from diving into literature, I was also very, very interested in Malaysian flora and fauna. So butterflies and bugs and plants and things like that. So this is a combination of that, of that, um, those two interests. This is called Sometimes. And this is from my third collection, um, Onkalo. Vindula deone erotela, delias oraya, urania lelus, grapium sarpedon, apias nero figulina. Papa, I repeat the names of common Malayan butterflies from the book that used to be on the long white shelf in our house in Taiping, where my memories begin. Papa, I fear I will never recover. I know this kind of love begins and ends with flowers, not words, not alcohol, not tears, not even sadness. Papa, I am tired of the earth. I remember catching butterflies. They lived for a while in tall glass bottles and once a green Milo tin. Slowly their wings faded and turned into mellow dust, collecting mites, like unwelcome strangers into a dark world. Papa, I remember the orange and brown bed cover, prickly to the touch, my green pinafore and sunflower curtains, grandfather standing in his white shorts wondering where you are. It has been 40 years since you left me, a child crying by the shattering sea. I fear I have never recovered. I think I've outstayed my time. Unlike you, there is no more mourning. There is no more darkening of the sky, of the liver, throat, and spleen, of in-between colored boats that ferry nightly metaphors to sweet, darling madness. Papa, the birds and cicadas are asleep. The floods are gone, but the butterflies, they still lie awake in the garden. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, congratulations. I can see why you're a major poet. I mean, that <laughs> is beautiful. It tells a story, but it's so evocative. Thank it's you. moving. It paints a picture. And we see Papa quite vividly. And 
in your memory too. And there, the butterflies are flying all around us. <laughs> Clearly, the flora and uh, of of Malaysia is really something very special. Um, mm -hmm. Am I right that yours is the country that has the world's largest known flower? Did you know yes. this? Yes, in Malaysia. Yes. Yeah. And also, we have the, the oldest rainforest in the world. It's older than the Amazon in Borneo. And I have a deep fascination um, for, for forests, for example. I mean, right now here in Sweden, um, I go to the forest every Sunday and I walk freely, <laughs> which I can't really do in the rainforest because it's just, you'll need a sort of machete to just kind of hack. Why are you? Vines and <laughs> why are you in Sweden? I mean, you clearly you are now a world person. You, you start out, you know, in first you go to New Zealand, then you find me in, in Winnipeg, then you're back home. And now you're, what is this global life you're leading? Well, I'm still a writer, but I'm now working in a completely different industry. I'm working in, in video games in, 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 you know, and in a studio, um, which is a Swedish studio, but I'm working with Microsoft or Xbox. But yes, I'm helping to craft an open world. And I'm not sure if you know what that means. So open world means you can go anywhere in the world, triple A which means it's a huge budget, like Hollywood budget. Trip and way, trip and, sorry, open world, triple A game that is set in 1970s Southeast Asia. So I was hired when the pandemic hit um, as an, ex an expert on Southeast Asia. Um, because I think when, you, when you're creating a game and you're creating something that is, that is evocative of a certain era, you need experts. So I was hired as an expert. Uh, and then they eventually hired me on the narrative team. So I sustained this sort of, you know, remote working over multiple continents for 18 months. And they moved me to Stockholm in October 2021. So I'm now working full time at the studio, um, writing the world, developing the world, developing characters, writing cinematics, writing dialogue, writing everything that pertains to character, narrative, world building, plot, conflict in this video game. Is this what Shakespeare might have been doing had he <laughs> lived today instead of 500 years ago? Very possibly, because I think video games is, is the future. It's the future of entertainment. It's the future of education. It's the future of immersive storytelling. It's Does... a very different kind of writing. It's extremely challenging, but it's a lot of fun. I really like my job. Um, it's, it's very challenging. It's stimulating. Never a dull moment, but it's very stressful because there's a lot of money involved as you can imagine uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars because games make a lot of money um three billion people on planet earth are gamers which is an incredible staggering figure um it surpasses all form of entertainment so it's uh, it's very exciting it's the future and i'm very very glad to be a part of it right now in terms of the present of the 33 million people who live in malaysia does poetry figure in their lives at all? What is the place of poetry now in your country of origin? I think there are pockets. I think, you know, when I started Rhino Press in, in the late 90s, it sort of started um, an interest in, in, in the possibility of, of writing, the possibility that someone like, you know, a student, for example, or, or, or a companion or someone who read poetry could also say, hang on a minute, I can write. I can do this too. Why can't I? And so I think from the late nineteen um, late nineties, there were you know there was sort of a mini explosion of all these magazines and all these chapbooks and all these sort of underground uh, movements because Malaysia at the time was was very very political. 
um, there was a lot of anger towards Mahathir Muhammad, who was the then prime minister at the time. The fervor of of revolution, the fervor of reformasi, the fervor of wanting to change things for the better um, just came about and people were angry. They started writing. There were a lot more avenues. So I think today where it has landed, it has landed in the space that straddles the academic to the living room, to an art gallery, to um, online journals, to you know mobile phones. It's everywhere. And we've also created a lot of a lot of platforms for many refugees and migrants who've come to Malaysia, because a lot of them are very, very well-versed in poetry as well. And you've organized literary festivals. Mm -hmm. What led you to doing that? Um, in 2008, Georgetown was declared um, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And in 2011, um, the chief minister of Penang approached me and asked if I wanted to run a festival. And I was initially a bit skeptical because I I was already doing one in Kuala Lumpur at the time. And there was only sort of like a, a, you know, a margin of six months between the two festivals. And I was like, is this even possible? But then I was convinced. Um, and we started with five writers at the first Georgetown Literary Festival. And when I left my role as director in 2018, we had 150 writers. Wow. And we had also won the London Book Fair's International Excellence Award that year as well. So it grew from five to 150. And yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. Um, I worked with a lot of really, really wonderful institutions uh, all over the world, creating, curating a meaningful program that celebrated world literature in the heart of Penang. Wonderful. Well, you're curating a very small selection of poetry for us today. Give us now the poem by another poet from your part of the world. You mentioned their name. Tell us yes. more about them and what the poem's going to be. Okay, so um, Saleh bin Jonet is, uh, was um, one of my favorite Malaysian poets. Um, he was also quite instrumental in helping me find my place uh, when I returned from Canada. He was very supportive. Um, he took me around to meet other writers, other poets, other artists, and sort of made me feel that I was part of a community. Uh, he died a few years ago, and um, this is one of my favorite poems of his from uh, the collection called Poems Sacred and Profane by Saleh Benjonid. So this is called A Hymn to My Sarong. In the easy sensuality of your canopy, I sit here in the fading light, airing my shame and pride, marvelous golden mangoes of the sun, dangling loose in the tingling caress of the breeze, my feet to the horizon, my rump on the earth's, intimate of my bloody rites of passage, reassuringly protective, comically familiar. In you, I feel continuity, plastering and free, sacred and profane. In you, I taste infinity, utterly sexual and beyond sex. Like the acts that seal the passionate concord between you and I, gushing fountains of solitary delight, drenching the diaphanous sky libidinously, secret rituals of kind in the oasis of stripened tents, in the blazing heat of the desert of pubescent lust and a mirage of virgin's eyes, the sun raining down in punishing rays lasciviously, riding high on the timeless tiger across the noon landscape of the now, your silky halter round the necks rubbing against the jugular, two stringy bodies looped together, 
coming together in the stretched noose of ecstasy, invisible cords vibrating the concupiscence of oneness, nowness. Wow. Well, there we are. That, that, <laughs> hey, well, he tells it like it is, doesn't he? My goodness, you can't get yes. more physical than that. That must yes. be the most physical poem that we have ever heard. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> yes, I mean he was he was notoriously he was he was yeah he was he was quite scandalous and very very provocative. I could believe that if if the poem gives a flavor of his uh, approach to life. But was he fun as well as being scandalous? Was he what? Sorry. Was he fun? Was he fun to know? A good guy to know. You oh yes, 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 absolutely. He was a wonderful human being, uh, very funny, um, very brilliant, brilliant man, but also very uh, you know pulled by the many demons that he had. As you would, you know, if you're a poet who's who's uh, uh, dealing with a lot of different forces in, in Malaysian politics and Malaysian reality, and he was one who didn't—he was not afraid to show and to speak his mind. And his use of language there is extraordinary and yes, yes. precise, and yes. Use vocabulary that is not the kind of vocabulary, particularly that that you would use. What, no. <laughs> for, what for you does poetry do? What can poetry do that, say, prose, fiction, drama? doesn't do poetry is very immediate to me um i i bought myself a typewriter because i find that a typewriter and poetry sort of go together for me it it captures a moment in time in a way that prose can't um and you know living in sweden in the last sort of 18 months has been very challenging in many ways um and it has allowed me to write in a completely different way and I'm very grateful to my typewriter for that. I'm very grateful to the fact that I have a wonderful space to be able to work in and that my mind is still able to think in a, in a way that transcends the kind of poetic, poetic language I was uh, more familiar with. So in, essentially what I'm saying is that it allows me to capture immediate moments in a way that is very distinct whether I pick up a pencil or whether I use my typewriter. So it's malleable in that sense. Like the word that comes from a pencil is very different from the word that comes from a typewriter. So that sense of immediacy, if I, so it's a, it's a choice. If I'm feeling something, if I'm feeling something, something needs to come out, I have a line. Do I choose to write it with a pencil on a page, on a paper, or do I choose to write it on the typewriter? So it's it's a process. It's It's really, really, it's so interesting because it's a choice. And I know that the outcomes will be completely different. You are very interesting. Before we leave, we want one more poem. But I also want to know when when, and if you'll be returning to Malaysia. I read recently that most people in the world die within seven miles of where they were born. Most people in the world. Do you plan to go back to Malaysia in the fullness of time? Um, I mean, Malaysia will always be home, but I, I feel that my my work there is done. My work there is done, and I'm... You know, the universe conspired to bring me to the Nordic countries, and I'm not sure why I'm here. But interestingly, I have a map of Sodomama, Stockholm, on my wall, and it's my father's map from 1960. So he was here in Stockholm in 1960, and I have his map. So there is a reason why I'm here, and I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'm sure I will. Um, so did you want me to read another one? I want you to read one more. Clearly, your father has never left you. You began with him, you're ending with him, and the poem that you first read was about him. Who, what is this poem going to be about? So this is an example of uh, something that I'm, I'm writing here now. Um, again, it's it's that that you know that new voice, that new 
way of working with, with words. Um, so this is from um, what will hopefully be my first collection written in Sweden. So this is untitled. In four days, I will be home, away from the gray dark, the mottled sky, the strange sun. I think of death, of faces staring into ice, eyes stuck to sheets like plunder. I long for rain, the knifing of skies into sheets of water, the fire of clashing light, the heat stirring in the belly of tar, the single notes of heat, of caressing clouds, the stain on this fervent tongue. Gosh. Mm. Well, I mean, you certainly, you do it for us. We think you're a monster. <laughs> if people are listening to this, they'll be, if they didn't know about you, they'll be m most intrigued. They'll want to know more. Which of your books, what, what, name a poetry book, and then generally, which of your work do you think somebody should, having discovered you here, should, you know, Google and discover and buy and acquire of your work? What do you recommend? Where, where should we start? Those of us who are now uh, beneath Charlie groupies. Um, so I have four collections of poems. I also have a novel and a memoir and a collection of short stories. But in terms of poetry, um, the one that is readily available um, online is Incantations, Incarcerations. And this mm. is my fourth collection. Uh, this was published in 2019, I believe. That's right, 2019. Um, and it's about poems of a woman who is dealing with age, with menopause, uh, losing her children to the world, climate change. Um, it's very honest. My work is very honest, but it also sort of straddles the political. Um, and this is readily available. So if, if your listeners wanted to try and glean uh, the mind of a very complex poet like Bernice Charlie, I think this would be the choice. But also very interesting. Is Growing Up With Ghosts your memoir? Yes, that's right. That, that published in 2011. I'm trying to get hold of a second-hand copy of that. And uh -huh. I'm to succeed because I know it won the Reader's Choice Awards because it is your story. Yes. Uh, in full. Right. Yes. scaringly honest. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Can you leave us with a thought of Malaysia? When you think back to your home country, what are your thoughts? What would you recommend our listeners to think about? The rain. The tropical rain. I miss that very, very much. Um, thunderstorms, lightning, the wet on leaves, the wet roads, the steam rising from the tar. Um, I miss the rain very much. Well. It's transporting us there now, just the thought of it. Yes, indeed. You're marvellous. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much. So that's it for this podcast. Our warm thanks to Bernice Chorley, who chose to read Sometimes by Bernice Chorley from Oncalo, from the Math Paper Press in 2013, and A Hymn to My Sarong by Saleh ben Jonid from Poems Sacred and Profane. Join us next time when we'll be visiting, exploring another Commonwealth country with more poetry from the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth Poetry Podcast is presented by Giles Brandreth and Afra Brandreth and produced by the University of Chester. Our special thanks to them and to the Royal Commonwealth Society. And to you, of course, for listening.